Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan. And for this episode of Flanagan's Ecologic, we're joined by Paul Schwer. He's a he's an expert in sustainable building design, an engineer who's focused on timber frame buildings. He was referred to us by Dennis Hayes at the Bullet Center up in Seattle, and Paul was very involved in, in the engineering of that project. So delighted to have Paul on Flanagan's Ecologic today. Hey, Paul, welcome to the show. Great to have you on Flanagan's Ecologic today. Thanks so much for the invite. Let, let's start way back. You and I both have New York roots. I just told you a minute ago that I was just visiting my mom, who's 92, and you have a dad who's turning 92. Where, where, what's your hometown on Long Island? Hometown is in Malvern, Long Island, which is uh, on the South Shore, about 20 miles from New York City. So it must be, uh, must be about uh, due south of Oyster Bay where I was living. Yeah, yeah, south of Oyster Bay, yeah. Yep. Uh, maybe that Oyster, Oyster Bay Wontog Parkway uh, goes right. Yeah, I'm a little further closer to the city than that, but yeah. A little in. So spent some time at Jones Beach growing up? Or? Jones Beach and Point Lookout, and that was one of my, one of my happy places was uh, body surfing in the Atlantic Ocean growing up. That's great. That's great. And then I read in your um, some of the materials about your life that you were out at, at Brookhaven on some, I don't know whether it was yeah. uh, some kind of a tour or something. When you had- well, it's it's a funny story because my mom was one of those moms that always took us to you know museums and this. And as as a twelve year old, you can imagine the ah oh, another museum. So we were coming back from a, a week at the beach. We took a, my dad would take a week off every summer, and we'd go to the beach or go go up to a mountain lake. And we're coming back from Montauk, which is at the very tip of Long Island. And we're driving back. My brother and sister are in the car. It's a 1967 Black Pontiac with no air conditioning in August. So you can imagine what the back seat was like. And we stop. And the kids are all thinking, myself included, we're stopping for ice cream. But we stop at the Brookhaven National Lab. And I'm like, what is this? And my mom, being mom, said, oh, they're having an open house this weekend. I thought you'd like to go through. And we're like, what? We didn't even know. I didn't even know what the Brookhaven National Lab was. I walked through it and I cannot even remember a single thing inside the building. But when you walked outside the building, the scientists had all these pet projects. And and one of them was a box with two pates of glass and a bunch of soda cans cut in half and painted black with a fan. So I turned the fan on and put my hand at the end. It was like, wow, that air is hot. Where, how is it? How is it doing that? And looking for a fire underneath it or an electrical connection, there was nothing but that fan. And I said, "Hmm, that's kind of interesting." Didn't think anything of it. And then I go back in the fall. I have to come up with a science project, right? And my mom says, "Pool, write the scientist." I'm like, "Write what scientist, mom? That box. You like that box at Brookhaven? Write him." So she literally found the name of the scientist, and believe it or not. I have a letter here from 1976 from the Brookhaven National Lab from some physicist who sent a 12-year-old the plans on how to build that solar collector, which I built for my science project. And that's how I got started. <laughs> that's a, that is a really cool story. Well, hats off to your mom also for uh, yes. guiding you in that way. But then you had that, you had that really uh, intrigue with uh, early, early, early solar. So... Did that um, shape your college decision? I mean, did you? Yeah, I like. I mean, I like to build things. I built a lot of go karts growing up, and then I built that that very simple solar collector. Which, by the way, the uh, the, the materials cost just just so you know was uh, three dollars and twenty four cents. <laughs> but um, 
that helped me, you know, th I thought I wanted to be an electrical engineer because that was where the energy was. And I actually became a mechanical engin engineer because that is the transformation of energy. And, and you do a little bit more energy modeling and studying of energy as opposed to, you know, connecting it. So I, I ended up going to Bucknell University in central Pennsylvania and got a mechanical engineering degree. And then I headed into Manhattan for my first job at Jaros Bauman Bowles, JB&B, which is now a hundred year old consulting engineering firm. Good place to start a career. How, how fantastic. How fantastic. And Bucknell, my friend, my great friend, Frank Arentowitz is going to be pleased to hear that. He's, he, I think he's on the board and he just loves Bucknell. They wrote, they all wrote across the country, a bunch of alumni number of, ah. years, number of years ago. Frank was all part of that, but well, that's really great. And then um, I, there's also a colorful story. You had all these colorful stories in your life, <laughs> but the, kind of a colorful story of you and your girlfriend, I guess. Uh, it sounded like me and my girlfriend in the day, just sort of <laughs> heading west in a Jeep. And uh, Yeah, I, I think at that point, she was, she was my, Joyce was my wife. And um, we had worked in Manhattan for eight or nine years. She was a chef. I was in the engineering field. You know, it's tough to find time together, especially when she was working the dinner shift. And we said, no. We need a break. How about we both quit our jobs and buy a Jeep and just wander around the country? So we did. And for five months, we wandered around uh, the U.S. and Canada. And as we wandered, we looked for a, you know, we were looking for a new place to live, someplace out outside of New York. I actually interviewed at RMI on that trip, believe it or not. I think it was Rick Heady I interviewed with. And I wasn't quite ready to go from you know, working for a big consulting engineering firm in New York City to, uh, you know, living in the mountains of Colorado. And I said, you know what, maybe later in my life, I'll work for RMI. And, and ironically enough, 20 years later, I got a chance to design their new innovation center um, as a consultant. So it was, it was an interesting story. So as we, as we went around, we looked at different cities, you know, Denver and Seattle and Portland. Joyce hates the hot weather. So that made it, you know, we knew we weren't going to settle in the bottom half of the country. And I'd interview at different firms. And uh, I liked the firm PAE when we when we landed in Portland and they offered me a job. And at that point we were probably running out of money. So it was time to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is great. That is great. We, You and I have a, sort of been interweaving. Rick is one of my very best friends and I still yeah, have- Yeah, he a, probably doesn't remember me. I mean, I was just one of the many people that interviewed and sure had decided a lot. not to accept. <laughs> had a lot of people coming through, but uh, how, how great and I just, I just saw Rick. I have a house. I, I still have my house up in Snowmass. Uh, oh, okay. Original Institute. Well, I, I also read that you were impressed by the old growth forest and that that's sort of, again, one of the, like the Brookhaven thing, shaping your career or inspiring you in a certain way. It sounds like the, sounds like the old growth forests and the, the massive timbers got you thinking about their role. And I know this sort of fast forwarding back to the, to a sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, and that it's, one of the places I go to find peace is, um, and I'm fortunate enough to live, you know, less than half an hour from, from trees that are sometimes twice as old as our country. And when you get deep enough in there and when you are able to quiet your mind and, you know, leave, a, leave the, you know, the, the world behind, it, it does help you, helps me at least think more deeply about these things and about different time spans. You know, we're such short-term thinkers in my daily life. You know, I have a meeting after this one. I've got a meeting next week. And when we think in such short time spans, and when you're around trees that are that old, it expands your thinking. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, you know, when I, when I thought about, okay, 
what is being an engineer? How is this surviving this long? And, and what are its resources, right? And you realize those trees, their only energy source is the sun, right? Their only water source is what lands on, you know, within their, you know, root structure. What, why don't we design buildings like that? Right. So as you know, as I was thinking this, this was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the natural step and Dr. Carl Henrik Robert, um, that came through Portland, I want to say in the late nineties, early two thousands. And we formed a little group of people. Duke Castle was part of it and a couple of architects and a contractor and a developer, Dennis Wild from Gertie Eland. And every once a month we grab pizza and a beer and we just say, hey, what's, what would be the quote unquote perfect building, right? And we brainstormed that and we did a process called backcasting. Have you heard of backcasting? Yeah, so you, we went out into the future. We went out 50 years, so you didn't have to worry about any technology and said, you're 50 years out, the problem is already solved. What does that building look like? And we wrote a paper about it. And remarkably, Ted, that paper is very, very similar to what became the Living Building Challenge. So, you know, Jason McLennan was thinking the same things from his time at, um, you know, in his architectural firms. Uh, and that's what really attracted me to the Living Building Challenge. We had done a lot of lead work. I'm a big fan of lead. I think it really moved the market. But when you do, you know, at this point, our firm has done over 100 lead platinum buildings. So we were clearly looking for what, what was next. And I really like the simplicity of the Living Building Challenge suddenly nature's budgets are your building's budgets. It's not this percentage better than ASHRAE or this you know, percent better than some code. It's, hey, how much sunfall lands on your site? That's your budget. How much rainfall lands on your site? That's your budget. And I was like, that's it. That's, that's how we start building and designing buildings that are more like ecosystems, live within the ecosystem budget. So it was fascinating time. Yeah, that, that's great. I was a question I was going to say is how does the living building challenge differ from lead? But there you just said it. Instead of these metrics sort of starting from an ASHRAE standard, you're you're starting with what nature's bounty provides. Uh, I, I love that whole notion of refrigeration or, or uh, what's natural refrigeration is just on the on the vine. Right? <laughs> but how, yeah. how how very interesting. And um, you've you've obviously been successful. Um, at, at promoting these concepts. You said you have over 100 lead platinum buildings. That's a huge accomplishment. Congratulations. But there must be resistance along the way, right? Is, is there resistance in the traditional architects? I, mean, I want to get into timber framing at some point, but we're yeah, talking sure, sure. more broadly about you know, sort of these living buildings or these buildings that are really in line with nature. What, what, what yeah. kind of resistance have you got from that? Yeah, and just to clarify, the 100 buildings, or PAE has done that. I've been involved in a bunch of them, but it's the firm, not me individually. That would be a lot to do as an individual. Um, but the resist, the traditional resistance was all around, you know, economic. There, there, there's a few different. It's economics. It's in the world of buildings. It's a very conservative um, world because it's pretty high risk. You know, you're putting a lot of money out there. If you If it's a commercial office building and doesn't rent, you'll lose a lot of money. So there's... There's this high risk and there's relatively little reward for doing something different. There's a lot of reward for doing the same thing. So we have a, you know, the, the system is not set up that great for it. So what I got pretty good at was getting people comfortable with the risk that it's really not that risky. 
our most innovative buildings, and which we'll talk about, are using what we call state of the shelf. We didn't invent any new products. It's that heat pump that was already there. It's that insulation just putting a little more in there. It's that window buying the better window. None of this is reinventing a technology. And yet you put that existing technology with a great design team in the right order. And suddenly you have a building that has an EUI of 16, you know, which a typical one in Seattle, for instance, might be 90, right? So it's, so you, you're just, we're just, that got people comfortable because I wasn't experimenting too much. It was just all these systems that are already there. Um, and in some cases you have uh, clear economic paybacks if you're energy, if you're in an area with high energy rates, like say San Francisco or New York, you can, you can, you know, sell it on that. In the Northwest, we have pretty inexpensive energy rates, so it's hard to sell it on that. So you have to sell it on the softer things. When we uh, were designing the PA living building, I had to sell my own board, right? And they said, you know, we definitely want to live our values. We're all into it. Um, here's your parameters, Paul. We're willing to pay 10% more rent than the market. I was like, okay, I can live with that. And I like that because 10%, I think other firms would be willing to do. And if we, in that case, we were doing the first developer-led living building, said other, other people might do that. And then as we're developing the building, I realized that 10% can be paid off by just not having to pay for recruitment of four engineers. We have 200 engineers in Portland, right? If we, don't, if we can recruit just four without paying the fee, that just paid our 10% rent premium. If we can retain just four engineers because it's a really cool building and it's a great place to work, that could pay for it. If it increases the productivity, just 2% of our staff, that pays for the 10% rent premium. So you get in these, you know, out of the economic, the typical economic clear payback of energy, but it's mushy, right? I can't prove in a study that my building is, and my people are 10% more effective. Although very interesting story, Ted, one of the engineers was, was thinking of leaving. A lot of engineers are getting recruited, as you can imagine right now. And he had just toured the building with a friend through the building. And he was on the sidewalk and one of my partners ran into him. And he was telling the friend, and the friend was saying, how cool a building, you get to work in that building. And then he realized, holy crap, if I leave, I don't get to work in that building. And he stayed. So we've already had our first save. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, we have some of the some of our corporate clients. You know, we do a lot of solar project management. Some of them are the same way. The payback is less important than the recruitment and the retention of top flight talent. And that's that's a new new uh, that's a new way of looking at uh, at capital costs. Or, uh, yeah, in a building. Well, that's really that's really fascinating. Well, you mentioned this PAE headquarters building that that is brand is it brand new? Is it a couple yeah, years? Yeah, nine months old. We moved in nine months ago. Yeah. What are some of the what are some of the features of it? So so it is a full living building. In fact, it's the largest urban living building right now. We learned a ton working with Dennis Hayes on the Bullet uh, the Bullet Center in Seattle. Um, and a, a few things that are that are different. So it is in, in being, being a full living building, it's net zero, net positive energy. It generates 5% more energy than it uses. It's net zero water. So again, we only use the water that lands on the roof. Um, we, we have an on-site waste treatment. We have an on-site composting system with vacuum flush toilets. Um, and one of the interesting features, and I think it's the first building in the US that has it, we have waterless urinals and we collect that in a tank and then we run that um, essentially through a distillation process and we create liquid fertilizer out of that, out of the urine in the building to the tune that 
uh, if you're a gardener, liquid fertilizer is a pretty in thing. We think we can generate about $50,000 a year in liquid fertilizer from a building that's only 58,000 square feet. So you think a dollar a square foot worth of fertilizer, some, some buildings energy use is more than a dollar a square foot. <laughs> but that's, a, that's a phenomenal story. And I guess you just encourage people to drink a lot of water when they come into Oh, we have, we have beer. It's not just water. We have beer on the deck and that even helps more, Ted. <laughs> I would think. Now let's go back. Let's go back to a couple of these features. Net positive energy. Uh, here in California, we can only size up our, our solar systems to to meet 100% of our load. What do you do with that net positive? What do you do with the surplus? Yeah, so we have a, a series of batteries in the building. And the way we got to net, net positive, uh, to, just to be clear, is we couldn't, um, if you're familiar with the Bullet Center, it has a large overhang on the roof of the building. The PA living building is in uh, an historic district and you're not allowed to see anything on the roof. It's a five-story building and we couldn't generate enough. With a two or three-story building, you can be net zero on your own roof. So we did something that's called scale jumping. And we put some of our PV on a different building and we chose an affordable housing project. So we essentially donated about $600,000 worth of PV to that, that project. We, and we had it installed, we designed it for them. Uh, they get the energy, we get the green tabs. Uh, and then the rest of the PV is on our roof. But to your point of not being able to overproduce, when you're in a downtown grid, they don't want the energy back. Uh, we went through a three-year process with uh, Portland General Electric to say, hey, we'll put batteries in our building. So we have a fair amount of batteries. Um, but we really want to share this energy with you because, hey, you have a 60,000 square foot building. When it's 100 degrees out, we can literally turn our building off and you can use that energy someplace else. Or if we're over-generating, we, we convinced them to allow us to back feed into the downtown grid. I think it's, it's definitely the first time it's ever been done in Portland, maybe the first time in any other city. It takes a lot of coordination. Uh, they wanted to limit our, our, us to only 50 kW because if you knock out the transformers, which in a downtown grid are meant to protect other buildings, if, if they get energy back, usually it means there's something went wrong in the building and they want to shut it down. Yep. So in our case, th th that's not the case. Um, so we had to work really closely with the engineers from Portland General Electric, uh, and to their credit, they they saw it through. There wasn't a there wasn't a normal. You couldn't check the box when you're asking for your service. Hey, we want to be two way power. So we met with them. We explained what we were trying to do. And now three or four years later, they'd love for more buildings to have batteries in the building, TV on the building, be able to meter it back, be able to quote unquote disappear the building from the grid so they can use the energy elsewhere on a hot day. Um, and I think that's really one of the future things in buildings is the batteries won't just be at renewable energy plants. They'll be at the building for true two-way power. Yeah. Oh, that, that's, wow, how exciting. Congratulations with that. Well, you mentioned the Bullet Center, and um, Dennis has talked about it uh, several times. I've talked with him about it. And you, you mentioned, I always call it the mortar board top, which yeah. is so, yeah. uh, you know, so um, it's a, such a signature element. And you, you somehow got through working with the city of Seattle to extend out over the sidewalks, which is just a, a Herculean task. But one of the features I love is, and I guess he told you, we need an irresistible stairway. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, just that notion of it's irresistible. It just, it just, just sort of draws you up. Um, talk about that. Yeah. It, every building needs exit stairs, right? And, and most buildings need to, if it's, if it's a taller building. So you already have this feature. Typically it's buried in the, and the back of the building and no one uses it, right? So why not move one of the exit stairs into an area where you use it and you get some exercise? 
Um, you know, Dennis is fond of saying, yeah, I went down two belt loops because his office was on the sixth floor and he was walking up to the sixth floor all the time. <laughs> but uh, so creating a staircase um, like that, people use it. We had some grad students from the UW, you know, spend a week in the staircase, you know, and looking at the elevator and saying how many people took the stairs was the elevator. And 85% of the people in the building took the stairs, which is unusual in a six story building. Most people just get by habit. Guess what? When you walk in a typical building, the first thing you see are the elevators, not the stair, right? Yep. So, so, so making this staircase, which was all, which is all glass and has a beautiful view of the Olympic Mountains, was was really a key. Um, originally, it was considered part of inside the building envelope, and it blew our energy budget. You can imagine a hundred percent glass stair, six stories tall, blowing your energy budget. And then we realized. Huh, what if we just draw the, the 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 line of the building inside the stair? So hey, you're walking in the stair in the wintertime, it's 50 degrees or 40 degrees. You don't care. It's probably cool. In the summertime, we put operable windows in the staircase. So even on a 90-degree day, you know, it doesn't get that hot, maybe 85. Um, and by it being unconditioned outside the building, we saved all the energy that would, would have been to try to heat and cool an all-glass stair. And that's what makes it irresistible. Um, so it's it's subtle things like that. How do you change human behavior? Um, you know, it's, it's make it easier to go to the stair than the elevator. Right. And we do that on our own, in our own building. We just, the door is open. It's a beautiful wood staircase. It's like, huh, your curiosity draws you up the stair. Yeah, that's, that's really true. And, and getting the exercise, I mean, so many yeah, people yeah. in office building just don't get any exercise. They're just sitting at their desk all day. Let's talk timber framing for a couple of minutes. You, um, bullet center is six stories. So yeah. that that's a timber framed building. I understand. It is. Um, we, I've just been working on a project in Tahoe, and I think the Tahoe codes is not letting us go over five stories with timber frame. I mean, is what do you talk about? Its potential. I mean, fascinated by. Oh it. yeah, yeah. Its potential is 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 pretty vast. So so the Bullet Center was NLT, which is now laminated timber. Our building is C CLT, cross laminated timber, essentially glued together. Um, we were fortunate enough to work on a project in Portland called the Framework, which was a 12-story building that did not end up getting built, but it got a de uh, Department of Agriculture grant to study timber framing, uh, including uh, both destructive testing of it and fire testing of it, which are the areas where people are concerned about. Um, that, and the test results of that literally changed the code. Um, so now you can go some substantially higher. There's a building... I want to say in Wisconsin, that's now 25 story timber building. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah, it's 25 or 26 stories. So it's that scale. So if the vast majority of buildings in the country are, are less than five stories, you know, a lot of people, you live in cities, you see all the tall buildings. Those are the exceptions, even by square footage, not just. Uh, so if you can go 20 to 30 stories with a timber building, that would probably cover 99% of the buildings and 96% of the square footage in the country. So it creates this wonderful possibility of um, locking in the carbon. Uh, our building is designed to last 500 years. It's designed to survive the Cascadia earthquake, which will happen, which happens every 350 years over the off the coast of Oregon. So you can design timber buildings to last incredibly long periods of time, and they essentially sequester the carbon. Um, and 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 I believe that you, you sequester the carbon. But in terms of strength, this cross-laminated timber um, is is equivalent to concrete and steel uh, in strength. You know, I'm not a structural engineer, but you, certainly in the, in the scales that we've worked, it, there ha there hasn't been an issue. 
What most people don't realize is, uh, especially in seismic zones, even when you do a timber frame building, you typically have a concrete core. And in the case of our building, we also had a concrete slab because we wanted a radiant uh, heating and cooling system. And we did all kinds of embodied carbon calcs for our building. And even though it's a timber building and it went up in six, in six weeks, one floor a week, another great thing about timber, you can build it very, very fast. The biggest embodied carbon is still the concrete in our building. Um, and a concrete timber core is still quite expensive. So those are fairly rare. Um, so as an industry, we do need to solve the issue of uh, the carbon emissions of cement, which is the, where the emissions come from in concrete. There's some very interesting products around that. Probably a good thing for a different podcast is getting into um, emission-free concrete. Yeah. And then, and so I'm thinking with strength is one issue that we've talked a little bit about. And then fire. And this, I think, is sort of counterintuitive that I think there's studies that suggest that a timber frame building is you're better off having timber frame in a fire than steel, which I guess can melt if it's hot enough and, and structurally. Yeah. Good. So so all buildings have at least a one hour rating. So that gives the, all of the occupants uh, an hour to get out of the building. All commercial buildings have fire protection systems. So getting out in an hour is usually not a problem. But there, there was this wonderful image of a building built in the early 1900s in Portland that had uh, timber beams and a metal uh, metal girders on the roof. And the metal girder melted over the timber beam when the building went caught on fire. So you could literally see the metal, you know, literally folded over and, you know, melted right over the timber beam. And the way we accomplish the fire protection is we have a char layer. So if you imagine you're having, you're camping and you have a big fire and you throw a big log on it. It takes a long time for that log to burn, and it takes a, a long time to get the char layer going. So when uh, when you look at the ceiling of a timber frame building, you're actually seeing some extra wood there to create a char layer to create the one hour rating. And by the way, if the ceilings are so beautiful, you don't add a whole nother material. There's no drop ceilings in these buildings. The, the actual structure is so beautiful, you avoid an entire set of materials all of your you know there's no other roof your structure is your ceiling ceiling which is really cool yeah that, that wow that is really cool and it, you know this is reminding me of conversations i've had with amory uh amory levens about nega steel you know when i started working at the institute we were promoting nega watts yes nega watts <laughs> now amory is promoting nega steel and nega cement uh and yes there's different ways you can adjust that certainly you can adjust the, the properties of the cement and and uh there's some exciting things there, but but this whole notion that that you know, I guess steel and cement are are huge greenhouse gas contributors, and the fact that we can just flip from this, uh, and I know Bill Gates is really into the steel, into the green steel making, supporting that, but that we can flip this huge cost to our ecosystem and our society, and shift to a, a timber frame which is sequestering the greenhouse gases. I mean, it just seems like what a fantastic progression for building. Yeah, and this is all. Forest Stewardship Council, Timber, it's, you know, FSC certified. Um, and there's a there's a visceral connection you have when you walk into a wood building. You just don't get it when you walk into a steel building. Um, yeah. And it feels different. It sounds different. It's just, um, I think we're, as a species, we're attuned to that. And you lose sight of that when you're in so many other buildings that, you know, you, you didn't have access to that for you know, 50 years of architecture, you, you, you were sitting under a two by four uh, spline ceiling and you didn't even see it, what was above it. And when you did, it was fireproofed and ugly. Ugly. Yeah. Yeah. What are your, a uh, couple, couple of wrap up questions. What, what are your next steps uh, professionally? 
Yeah, I think that right now there's um, a really big push for the electric electrification of both our building stock and our transportation system. And on the West Coast here, um, within 18 years, and hopefully within both of our lives, Ted, the entire West Coast will be powered by renewable energy. So uh, even uh, we're pushing a lot of clients to no longer bring natural gas into your building. There's no need. We've done million square foot buildings that don't have natural gas. My home I'm sitting in right now does not have natural gas. Um, I don't need gas to get to my to get to my office. My office doesn't have natural gas. You no longer need natural gas in our system. Um, so encouraging that both through our designs to show it's possible, and also uh, through people like you know Ralph Danola at the New Building Institute and others working on the policy levels, um, I think that you can that transformation can happen pretty quickly. Most people don't realize heat pumps are starting to be cool now. As even they're even in you know general. Uh, audiences for uh, articles for the general audiences and what people don't realize is how efficient they become and how good they are in cold temperatures now you can have heat pumps that are good down to zero degrees um, and while the bullet center had a geothermal heat heat pump with you know 26 wells our building just has three units that are the size of a refrigerator on the roof it's an air source heat pump and that's all we need to heat and cool a 58,000 square foot building. So the heat pump technology has really come a long way in the next, in the last 10 years. So I think getting that message out um, really uh, is really important. Um, you're, even if you can't put PV on your building, if you do an all electric building within the, you know, within the first 20 years of its life on the West Coast, that building will be quote unquote powered by renewable energy. And that'll be, you know, the same for the rest of the country as the grid gets greener and greener and greener. Good stuff. And then how do you keep balance personally? What do you do? I, I imagine you, you mentioned, you know, getting out into nature. Are you a backpacker? Or are you a skier? All the above? What, what's your thought? <laughs> yes, all of the above. I just got back from three days of backpacking in the Mount Jefferson wilderness area with my son. Um, I, I follow where the water goes. So when it falls, it's snow. As snow, I'm skiing. When it's in the rivers, uh, I stand up paddleboard or I do a little whitewater kayaking. Um, and when it lands in the ocean, uh, if it's warm enough, which it's not in, in the Pacific coast where I am, uh, I, I really enjoy body surfing. So I kind of like the flow of the water in whatever form I can find it in. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that sounds really great. Well, you look, uh, you look super healthy. Obviously <laughs> doing your, you got good karma because you're doing really good stuff for the planet. So, uh, carry on Mr. Schwer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much Ted, for having me. I really appreciate what you do and getting the, getting the message out. Yeah, thanks for your perspectives. Really great stuff. Talk to you soon. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.